1: Hello and welcome to episode 183. Today we'll conclude the interview with Oren Etzioni, Professor Emeritus of Computer Science at the University of Washington, and most notably the founding CEO of the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence, commonly referred to as AI2 in Seattle, founded by the late Paul Allen of Microsoft. Oren's awards include AAAI Fellow and Seattle's Geek of the Year, He grew AI2 to a team of over 200 researchers and created pivotal tools for doing AI with science research, such as the Semantic Scholar, a search engine that can understand scientific literature, and Mosaic, a knowledge base formed by extracting scientific knowledge from text. This is hugely important because of just how much the rate of research paper creation now outstrips the ability of researchers to read it, which makes it difficult to stay up with the field. AI could transform the productivity of scientific research by incredible degrees. Last week, we talked about parallels between AI and the human brain, the semantic scholar, and the potential for AI accelerating research through understanding scientific literature. Let's get back to the interview with Oren Etzioni. And you're talking there about the new crop of large language models and generative AI. And I want to go there and we're just about exactly a year from when that hand grenade was tossed with the chat GPT that propelled AI into the mainstream, not just in awareness, but in use. It, it lowered the bar to essentially zero for everyone to get into. How did that land in your world personally and professionally. What sort of reaction did you have to seeing that? What did it do in terms of changing plans, making things that might have seemed out of reach before, maybe brought them within reach? Describe that experience.
0: Sure. Well, for us, it actually starts at the inception of the Allen Institute and Troy. So Paul Allen really wanted to build what he called digital Aristotle a kind of scientific interactive textbook or scientific assistant that wouldn't just sit there, but could actually dialogue with you. And over time, we built various versions of what we called Aristo for short, you know, the Aristo project. And to measure its performance, to give Paul Allen and ourselves a sense of the project, we used uh, grade school tests as benchmarks. So we started with fourth grade tests, we used standardized tests from the state of New York, the Regions exam, fourth grade, then we went up to eighth grade, then even twelfth grade. And over time, we were making steady progress on the performance of the test. And we felt good. We got some insights. We improved the performance. We did various things. At a certain key point, our results really catapulted forward. It was around 2018. There was a wonderful story by Cade uh, Metz in the New York Times talking about how it was literally a breakthrough for AI technology passing an eighth grade science test. So again, this was the language part of the test. And again, there's multiple choice, various caveats. But fundamentally, for the first time, an AI system did well on an eighth grade science test. Soon we were doing really quite well on 12th grade science test with some caveats. So this was actually our first indication that this kind of technology was really getting good. And it was getting good using techniques that were precursors to the GPT models, similar kinds of models. Now, the next huge moment, though, despite all that, I did not anticipate, and neither did most of my colleagues, just how powerful scaling up these models would be. So, one of the biggest lessons of AI over many years, but particularly recently, is that you take these models and there was a sequence. GPT-1, it was a toy. GPT-2, it was cute. GPT-3, this might be somewhat useful. It's certainly interesting. GPT-3.5, your jaw drops. This is amazing, right? How did this happen? Well, GPT-3.5, again, there's some differences that are technical, but fundamentally the biggest difference was the scale of the data that it was trained on, billions of sentences. And so to me, the huge lesson or surprise is how much of a difference the scale of the data you put in makes and how far we can go with what are, in some sense, relatively simple models. Now, we still have a ways to go, right? The problem of AI is not solved, although I have some colleagues who, to use the old phrase, they've drunk the Kool-Aid and they say, oh, just scale it up a little bit more and we're done. I don't believe that, but we are... Looking So now GPT-5 is being traded and we are waiting with kind of healthy respect and mystery as to how good will that actually be. Mm. There's this constant tension
1: that's apparent in what you're saying and what just about everyone in the field is saying between this is great and this has problems with respect to AI and we need to be careful, but also don't draw the wrong lessons from that or don't fear this about it. I mean, you had an interview back in 2017 where you were saying look the terminator thing is not the way to look at this and i think of 2017 has been the year of peak terminator that's when it was everywhere on what people were talking about i think that's when people were taking nick bostrom's superintelligence to its greatest amount of public attention and and so the press went with terminator everywhere now i think that the conversation has changed some and and become more approachable in that now people in positions of authority no longer just go straight to the Terminator and dismiss this, but they do see that there's something there that needs to be addressed. I'm not necessarily talking about existential risk, but you mentioned President Biden and you met with him recently, private conversation, and talked about some of these aspects. I don't know if that impinged upon the executive order to any degree, but in fact, as we are recording this interview, there's also an AI safety summit put on by the British government happening at this moment in Bletchley Park, all of which says that people who have the power to regulate this industry to make decisions that affect how it's developed and deployed are waking up and saying... We ought to be doing something, we just don't know what it is. And how do you frame this tension between this is really good and can do amazing things and we need to be really careful about these things? Because that's true in a way that you can't say about many other allegedly dual-use technologies. Nuclear bombs have no upside, for instance, but in AI it seems it's balanced. How do you talk about this?
0: Sure. So first of all, I'm glad you put the existential risk, kind of fear-mongering in its place as less of a focus now, certainly for people who are in the business of making policy. I should say though, that in the same way that we're polarized about so many things, there is still a strong movement that is very concerned with that. Just a while ago, one of the more outlandish members of that movement. had an essay in Time Magazine where he talked about bombing data centers to retard the progress of malevolent AI and so on. So I do think that it's important for people to get educated about what AI can and cannot do. And AI is a tool. So I recently tweeted and people seem to resonate with it. I'm a lot more worried about humans than I am about AI. And of course, some people replied back and said, yeah, what about humans using AI? And that's exactly the point. So when you have powerful technology, it's almost inevitable in this day and age that some people will use it in nefarious ways. And that's true. So how do I think about AI? It's a power tool. It's a broad use power tool. It's not a weapon. So it's not like a nuclear bomb. But as a power tool, which may be electricity, right? Think of all the things that electricity has enabled, including many benefits, things, including uh, weaponry, but also including hospitals, including transportation, but also including people dying in car accidents, right? So when you have, whether it's the steam engine or electricity, which is Andrew drawings, of course, metaphor AI is the new electricity. When you have a, a, the computer itself talk about job loss. I like to point out that email. Thus far, email has cost us more jobs than AI, right? Because email is what allows us to outsource. Email has displaced a lot of clerical work, et cetera, et cetera. So we have these huge building blocks, whether it's electricity or just digitization and computers. And AI is the next fundamental building block. It's going to be used all over the map for good or for bad, for good and for bad. And I think that we need to drop down a level and think about particular applications and particular regulations about how to use it. So I'm actually less of a fan of broad and often ineffectual regulations or broad bodies. My colleague Gary Marcus suggests that a CERN for AI, it's kind of like the United Nations for AI. And again, to me, the United Nations is a great example of an organization that with great intentions was created, but it's either ineffectual, which is most of the time, or counterproductive when it's been kind of hijacked by countries and actors whose values I don't agree with. So security council is something that could be effectual, except, right, it's hamstrung by the veto power of various countries. So let's not get into UN politics, but my point is, when we try to draw a very, very broad brush Safety code, an international conduct code for AI. Stuff like that is coming. I'm not sure what it's really going to do, as opposed to, say, specific regulations about self driving cars or what should be the interaction between chatbots, right? A very appealing AI technology that can talk to you and kids, right? So I look at the technology is very broad. I look at regulations as should be specific to particular applications and to avoid the potential harms associated there.
1: And you proposed something in that respect that I'll get to in a moment. And I think it addresses the fact that at the moment we have AI in an essentially experimental phase being deployed for real-world applications in ways that it, it... In many cases, it probably shouldn't. If you look, for instance, at uh, image recognition fragility, where you can add high-frequency data that looks like noise to an image to make it imperceptibly different, but now completely change what it's interpreting the image as, it's clearly fragile in several respects there. And you have proposed at some point, that there should be a Hippocratic Oath for AI practitioners, which is some beautiful language. Too long to reproduce here. One of the parts that caught my ear was, I'm just going to quote, I will remember that I am not encountering dry data, mere zeros and ones, but human beings whose interactions with my AI software may affect the person's freedom, family, or economic stability. And there's some considerable potential there for introducing responsibility into a pipeline of practitioner development that hasn't been there before can you talk about your thoughts in that direction what prompted you to come up with that proposal
0: sure it's a favorite topic of mine thank you for bringing it up because as academics and thinkers we toil and we write things and they don't always receive the attention that we hope that they would so Really glad you brought this up because I do think it merits talking about a little bit more. One path, which is a legitimate and important path that we're deeply on, is the path of regulating technology, all powerful technology. We need to consider how to regulate it. It's a very difficult process because there's regulatory capture, right? The big companies try to bend the regulations to their will. There's the problem that the technology moves so fast and the regulation moves Slowly, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But nevertheless, that's a path. There's a completely different path, which is not a legal basis, but an ethical basis. And when we graduate from medical school, and of course, medicine is a highly regulated field, the people who graduate from medical school take a Hippocratic oath. And that represents their intention, right? It's not a regulation. It's not a legally binding thing. It's an oath that represents their intention to be good doctors, to do the right thing by their patients. And it's a very moving and important moment emotionally and ethically. As computer scientists, and particularly AI people, who become increasingly important in society and have increasing power. My suggestion was, why don't we take ADAPT, the rather lyrical Hippocratic oath that doctors say and have AI people say it. And I had the idea that people, when they graduate from school, take, you know, just like in medical school, stand up and very formally take this oath. It's not gotten uptake. I'm sorry to report, but maybe our conversation here will give it some new light. Thank you. There's an
1: enormous tussle going on right now, obviously for control of the AI space when there's so much at stake with a much larger audience for its use than ever existed a year before. Now, essentially every computer using person on the planet can put it to use in some way. One of those axes of conflict is proprietary versus open source. We've seen some open source, large language models, and obviously proprietary ones. And I'm just wondering what your take is on where you see this going, not necessarily just in the prosaic terms of winner and versus loser, but how it will reshape the field.
0: So I think that if we look at the history of computer science, certain areas have become largely dominated by large corporations. Let's say search engines, for example, became to the point where Search engines were operating an appropriate scale that if you weren't associated with Bing or Google, right, it was very hard to do relevant research in that field. And obviously, the academic field as well as the world of startups suffers from that, right? Because innovation suffers when there are only one or two or three games in town. There's, on the other hand, other places where the ability to do research is very rich. I like a world where an undergraduate with a laptop can do some very interesting cutting-edge work and surprise us all. So if large language models or these large models in general become purely the provenance of big corporations, that means that the set of participants and innovators inevitably is going to be limited. On the other hand, if there's a thriving open source movement and I've been part of government initiatives like the National AI research resource to provide more resources and to universities and so on. So if it's the case that we can use these models, extend these models, have access to open versions of these models, then the set of people who can participate in innovation, both on the business side and the academic side is much broader. And I think that's great. So I think the jury is still out not to get into, into the competition, but I think it's extremely important to keep this ecosystem as open and inclusive as possible.
1: So you would come down on the side of open sourcing the source code of the most advanced LLMs in this case. Would you see there uh, any risk to doing that or not? That's one of the old debates.
0: It is a fair question. And whenever we reveal a new technology, there is risk. But this is very broad technology, and the nefarious actors already have access to a lot of what they need. So I think in the Biden administration's order, there's some notice period, some red teaming and pre-testing, auditing of new products being revealed. But I would not try to restrict academia and the kind of the open enterprise Hmm. from being able to reveal what's under the hood. Ultimately, that's a very beneficial process. And you have to remember that we are not revealing the recipe to building a nuclear weapon or even to building a bioweapon. We are revealing the recipe towards building uh, broad use AI tools that do have some worrying use cases. I think that's a very different thing than weapons regulation.
1: Right. Well, and at the intersection of worrying use cases, and you mentioned President Biden, and as I said earlier, you got to talk with him recently. I understood one of the topics was misinformation. That's got to be close to his heart because Hillary Clinton arguably lost the election due to influence in 2016 of AI on misinformation through Cambridge Analytica and other vectors. Where do you think entities such as the Biden administration and other similar bodies stand with respect to trying to put some guardrails around that? Is it a big enough problem that we need guardrails?
0: So misinformation has always been an issue for many years. The question is how the technology of misinformation advances, how it becomes easier over time to produce more information, more persuasive misinformation, more cheaply. And I actually think relative to the 2016 and the 2020 elections, where we have seen some use, it was still expensive, it was still primitive. I'm very concerned that in the 2024 elections, and we're already seeing signs of it with the current conflict in the Middle East, with the elections in Taiwan, the tools that anti-democratic actors have available to them are increasingly sophisticated. The cost of creating deep fakes of various sorts are plummeting. And on the other side, our defensive abilities are not nearly as good. So we did discuss that in a small group with President Biden. I think that the administration, and this is the interesting thing about democracy, and there was that recent lawsuit against the administration and their conversations with social media, about how to suppress misinformation. And basically, the judges, if you will, reprimand it. Again, all these things are in complex legal process. But basically, the judiciary has said that the administration should not be leaning on social media companies because this raises First Amendment issues. So I think the administration is extremely concerned with misinformation, as we all are. I do not think that the solution is going to come from the government. I also don't think that it's really a for-profit type of problem because it's not obvious how do you make money warding misinformation. So I'm extremely interested in nonprofit efforts to bring more transparency, detection, transparency analysis of misinformation efforts. And by the way, when I say misinformation, I'm talking about extreme efforts. There's always some statements that you and I might agree with or disagree with and we can have a healthy debate on, and they can be posed in this way, or they could be posed in a more unfair way. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about deep fakes. I'm talking about showing the Pope wearing things he never wore. I'm talking about showing the president being rushed into the hospital when he's just sparring. I'm talking about things that are clearly faked, faked using an AI, and we need the tools to identify that and let the world know that this is fake in real time.
1: Well, the last five years or so suggests that the large social media companies, I'm thinking Twitter or X and Facebook, are not in any hurry to or any danger of going too far in limiting misinformation. You mentioned nonprofit. Do you think that there's a third way here that's not the social media companies, not the government, but that some other actor might show us the way.
0: The social media companies are unlikely to lead the charge here for two reasons. A they have an economic incentive to just promulgate content and a lot of that content is very engaging, but secondly, they have their own pressure on them and we've seen this, right? The claims whenever you suppress content from one side, then the other side claims, oh you're being hostile to us. That puts them in an awkward position. I do think there's a third way. If you look, there are organizations like Snopes, like factcheck.org, like others that are credible and do the job to do fact checking and to determine what's true. And the issue is that they're manual, they can't keep up. So I want to build AI tools that are trustworthy, that are nonprofits, so they're unimpeachable, they don't have a political agenda, they don't have a profit motive, they're not constrained by the government. They do the job of factcheck.org, but they do it at AI speed and at AI scale. And that needs to happen
1: soon. Mm. So much we could unpack there. Unfortunately, we're operating at human speed and human scale. And that means we're approaching the end of our time. I'm so sorry about that. But if there's a chance to visit one more topic here, you said before we started recording that you are starting some work at University of Washington in big ideas in AI. I know I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that because that sounds fascinating.
0: Well, a lot of our conversation these days is really driven by AI technology because AI technology is kind of the main show, right? ChatGPT burst onto the scene, the most popular product right the its trajectory we became popular faster than any other product in history. But there's an even more fundamental question at least intellectually which is what is the nature of intelligence? What is the nature of the human mind? How do we build intelligent machines? These models that we've seen are only part of the answer. So I would leave you with just the following statement. That question, that incredibly rich question, that's one of the most fundamentally intellectual questions across all of science and all of philosophy. It's like the question, what's the origin of the universe, right? It's a very distinguished question that question we've still only scratched the surface of even with when GPT-5 comes out. So I'm looking forward to both in in the classroom and in research on working to understand what have we learned about that question in the last 70 years or so and what is still open as we move forward.
1: Okay, well, that's all the time I'm afraid we have right now, but and it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Where can people go to find out more about what you are doing now or other organizations that you are affiliated with and want people to know about their continuing work?
0: Well, my name is sufficiently unique that I like to tell people I'm always a Google search away. So you just search for Ori Etzioni and you'll find probably too much of what I'm doing. The Allen Institute for AI is at allenai.org the Semantic Scholar that we talked about at semanticscholar.org. So those are three ways to go. And when in doubt, you can, of course, ask one of your favorite GPTs. Some of them stopped learning in 2021. So ask a more recent one, like the one at u.com. Hey, what's Orin up to these days?
1: Well, Orin thank you so much for coming on AI and
0: U. Peter, it's a real pleasure.
1: That's the end of the interview. What about those big ideas, eh? To think that a couple of decades ago, the pace of progress seemed almost stagnant, and now we're developing capabilities that lead us to knock on the door of understanding mysteries like the human mind. In today's news, ripped from the headlines about AI, the Screen Actors Guild and American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, SAG-AFTRA, has followed the Writers Guild of America in settling their four-month-long strike against the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. Key among the provisions of the settlement were agreements with respect to AI because the actors were concerned about being scanned and computer models of themselves replacing actors via CGI. This is a process, by the way, that you can see dramatized in a 2013 movie called The Congress, starring Robin Wright, essentially as herself going through that process. A very brave thing for any actor to do, if I may say. So the settlement includes agreements that studios must compensate an actor if performances are used to train a model. They must secure an actor's consent before using a synthetic likeness or performance, regardless of whether the replica was made by scanning the actor or extracting information from existing footage. The actor has the right to refuse. If the actor consents, studios must compensate the actor for the days they would have worked if they had performed in person, Studios may use digital replicas of recognizable actors who have background roles and don't speak, but they must compensate the actors. If studios alter a synthetic background actor so it appears to speak, they must pay the actor a full wage. And if studios want to synthesize a deceased actor who did not consent while alive, after must seek consent from the heirs or estate. Studios can combine the likenesses of multiple actors into a, quote, synthetic performer but they must seek consent and compensate the actors for recognizable elements they use. In addition, they must notify SAG-AFTRA and allow the union to bargain on behalf of the actors. Finally, the alliance must meet with SAG-AFTRA semi-annually to review the state of affairs in AI, which is a wise move given how fast things are moving, giving the actors an opportunity to adjust guidelines in response as technology and law develop. Now, this all covers on-screen actors. It does not cover voice or motion actors in video games or television animation. Those are fields that may still yet see future strikes. We will explore this issue of AI in motion picture production in later episodes. Next week, my guest will be Tabitha Swanson an independent video producer in Berlin who has recently completed a contract to make a movie about an AI using the most advanced AI video creation tools. The movie is called White Mirror. That's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode
0: of AI and You please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Artificial Intelligence and You and see more videos and articles at net. That's a-i-a-n-d-y-o-u.net where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.